Hey everybody, it's Tom Panneries. The episode you're about to hear, which is about Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, was recorded back in the middle of June. And since that recording, we heard the news that Ms. Morrison passed away at the age of 88 at the beginning of August. I wanted to come on before the episode actually started to say that Stella and I uh, wanted to dedicate this episode to her memory. And we both hope that we do this novel justice, and we hope that you will, in light of all this, go out and read The Bluest Eye or any other of Toni Morrison's novels. Uh, She is an amazing, crucial writer in American literature, and she will be dearly missed by us and many, many others. Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I, uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 33, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. I don't really have any questions. I mean, I have interests. And I have uh, imaginative journeys, but there's no final... If somebody said, does God exist? And I could get an answer, yes or no. I did that when I was 11. And the girl that I was talking to said, he does exist. No, she said he doesn't exist. I said, yes, he does. She said, no, he doesn't. And I said, how do you know? And she said, because I have been praying for blue eyes for two years. And he didn't deliver. So what do I get to get? A hundred years later, I write a book (laughs) called The Bluest Side. Good answer. Good answer. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one particular piece of literature that we have both read, and then we determine whether it's worthy of its either positive, negative, or not even, in the case of this one, reputation early on, anyways. So this one, I kind of want to start off with a a little message because with literature, what I love about literature is, and I even had an example of it today where I just talked to a stranger because she was reading a book that I read and I just asked, you know, or you are, are you enjoying it? Literature, I think it brings us together and we are able to somehow find a little piece of ourselves in it or at least enjoy ourselves or find something that might resonate with us. However, all pieces of literature aren't necessarily our stories. And I think that while we've had certain choices on this podcast that have represented people that we don't, Tom and I do not represent, I think it's not as extreme an example as the bluest eye here. 
And so I just want to say that while this is not our story, this is where empathy comes into play. And so Tom and I, while we may be white, we're not going to overlay our whiteness on anything that we say, but we're certainly going to have good discussion about the literature itself and, and the words and what Tony, Tony Morrison is putting down, though we can't necessarily put ourselves in the places of Pecola, Breedwealth, and, and the other characters. So I just wanted to put that out there since we don't have the representation on this particular show that could have been fun to do. So anyways, I also didn't really have the heart to have a fun opening, like this is the blank to my blank, because this is just not the novel for that. So along for the ride on this particular novel is my good friend, Tom Panneries. Hey, I'd like to add too, because um, as I've been actually in discussions about books like this or the overall concept of introducing books into curricula that reflect different experiences and hopefully reflect the experience of the makeup of the people in your classroom and that you know I teach I teach both ninth and 12th grade um, I have a huge difference in the makeup of my classroom demographically and I don't mean age-wise um, in my AP lit class it's mostly white kids um, there are a few Asian students. Um, and every year I only have about maybe one or two black students and maybe one or two, uh, you know, Latinx students. And then it's pretty much like the, not completely the polar opposite in my ninth grade, um, standard, not standard, uh, like general level classes where I have a lot of black students, a lot of Latino Latinx students and, um, and a few white kids. So you want to bring a wide variety of, of literature that shows us different perspectives and, and the kids, um, if, you know, if they're black, Latinx or whatever they get, or if they're, you know, gay, transgender, you know, however, whoever, and however they are, they can, I maybe identify with certain characters or certain experiences on the flip side of that. And this is something I don't, I, I don't hear a lot of the point. I don't hear a lot of people make, but I think is just as important as we need texts that reflect the people and, and, they can they can understand and um, identify with those experiences. The flip side of it is a point that I also think is really important. We need texts that take the kids who are in a um, and I'm, I'm this is where I'm going to bring my whiteness into it. Where they're in a white suburban bubble or something like that, and they make them uncomfortable because they're they are shown the experiences of other groups of people who they will never be. Um, and I think that's just as important as being able to identify with a text. So, you know, for one thing, like you, you read the catcher in the rye because, you know, a, a pissy teenage boy from the suburbs can probably identify with Holden Caulfield. But at the same time, like you bring something in like the bluest eye or beloved or, or um, a raisin in the sun or, or a number of other, um, their eyes were watching God or a number of other, you know, and I'm, I know I'm picking from like, african-american black text here but because that kid doesn't know what it's like to be black or they don't know what it's like to be latinx or something so or they don't want to know it's they might not be gay so they don't know what it's like to be gay so you bring in those characters to show them and hopefully they gain perspective on it so i just wanted to make that point because in circles where people talk about literature they seem to forget that second part about making the kids who are way too secure in their in their bubble uncomfortable through the literature because it's a safe thing to do yeah, I In think that's part of what empathy is, honestly, mm -hmm. is making people uncomfortable and getting them out of their shells. And, yeah. But the, the problem is, you know, are they scoffers or apathetic and they're not even willing to have that experience? So, unfortunately, that's the that's the tough thing. That's really frustrating, too. And I've, I've encountered that as well. And I've, I've encountered it, again, I'm stereotyping, but I have this experience. Of, a lot of it comes from white boys. 
and especially white boys who tend to be, you know, more Republican than Democrat or, or, or have a certain political persuasion toward a certain person. Honestly, like I, I've over the years have gotten less and less resistant, more and more resistant to that and more and more kind of in the way of like, well, I'm at least going to try. I'm at least going to put this in front of you, you know, and, and try to at least, you know, I know you'll scoff. I know the way, you know, but at the same time, like, you know, what am I doing if I'm not at least trying to, you know, show you, okay, this is a different perspective, you know, because it took me a long time to gain that empathy post high school into college, into my, really into my twenties and thirties. Like, you know, as I've aged, I think I've gained more, but, um, I, I'd let, you know, I, I, I don't want, I don't think that every generation has to wait as long as I did, you know? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, anyways, that's our little preamble. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I know. I just thought it was, uh, I, I just feel like we're encountering something that we've, and you know why the cage bird sings. Yes. I think that was certainly, we're on that level here, but I think it, was perhaps not as uncomfortable as maybe this one will get. Actually, I guess there are some themes, similar themes there now that I'm thinking back. But this one, I think there is more brutality there. And so I just figured we should probably uh, get that, yeah. you know, talk about it a little bit. So. I think this one's described in ways that are a little more graphic, too. Yeah. In a sense. Not that not that I, not that I know why the Caged Birds thing sings wasn't graphic in places, but... You know, I don't know. Morrison's style compared to Maya Angelou's style is there's a there's a distinct difference. Sure. Yeah. Well, what is your history with this book? This is the first time I've read it, actually. I'd heard of it. Uh, and I know that one of the other teachers in my department had taught it because I got this copy from the book room at my high school. But it is the uh, first time I read it. It's the second Toni Morrison novel that I've read though. I have read twice and I have taught her one of her other really, really well-known novels, uh, Beloved, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. So I was actually fearful that you were going to pick Beloved at one point. I'm sure you still might. I don't actually care for Beloved, though I do recognize its place in literature. Mm -hmm. And so I was a little turned off from Toni Morrison, not because of her as a writer because she has this wonderful way with words and, and I mm -hmm. think she has a, a, a great gift, but just subject matter wise, there was only so much I could take. And so I was not really looking for more, more Toni Morrison novels, <laughs> but this one popped up because I was actually watching on Netflix, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. And one of the characters was wanting to – I think there was a book report, which is kind of weird because they seem like they're sophomores or juniors. And she wanted to do the bluest eye as a book report, but it wasn't allowed because it was banned. And then she went to the library, and for whatever reason, the library has one of those old-school little card card catalog things rather than it being digital i don't know what time this oh uh, i miss so card catalog yeah and so it wasn't even it wasn't even in there and then the librarian went through and she said these are all the books that are like have been banned and everything and there was this whole to do about you know trying to get these books back in and so i had to look up like why is the student so impassioned about the bluest eye and I decided to search around, and of course, there's the little secret society that I have at school with different readers, and I was able to grab myself a copy from one of those people in the secret society, and that is history. <laughs> so, again, you know, Toni Morrison, there's something about this woman that 
she and we'll talk about when we get to style and format that you just go along with whatever she does and you don't even bat an eye to a certain extent but the the subject matter is just heavy and I can understand why it's so heavy but I feel like this is one of the more and last episode was kind of heavy too but you know mutants don't necessarily exist <laughs> so this one is just not like that it's, way it's more I know yeah not in that way so yeah my history is through the chilling adventures of Sabrina and then reading it just to check out what this was about and then deciding that maybe it would be a good a good book to do and also being lazy because it's about 200 pages and I thought well it's you know we've got some we got some time crunch so let's let's do this I'm ready for it so uh, I, I'm not surprised that like kids in high school on the chilling adventures of Sabrina are doing something you wouldn't expect high school students to do considering that like the kids in Riverdale own like a speakeasy and you have to turn around every once in a while. It'd be like they're teenagers on Riverdale. So that's why I don't watch Riverdale. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about Toni Morrison and this biography I got from LitLovers.com. So they're a very helpful source. With her incredible string of lyrical, imaginative, and adventurous modern classics, Toni Morrison lays claim to being one of America's best novelists. Race issues are at the heart of many of Morrison's most enduring novels, from the ways that white concepts of beauty affect a girl's self-image in the bluest eye, to themes of segregation in Sulu and slavery in her signature work, Beloved. Through it all, Morrison relates her tales with lyrical eloquence and spellbinding mystery. Born Chloe Anthony... Wolford. Morrison's unique approach to writing stems from a childhood spent steeped in folklore and mythology. Her family reveled in sharing these often tales, and their commingling of the fantastic and the natural world became a key element in her work when she began penning original tales of her own. She sounds a little bit like Flannery O'Connor to me. The other ma majorly influential factor in her writing was the racism she experienced firsthand in, as Jet Magazine described it, the mixed and sometimes hostile neighborhood of Lorraine, Ohio, which is actually the setting of our novel today. When Morrison was only a toddler, her home was set afire by racists while her family was still inside of it. During times such as these, she found strength in her father, who instilled in her a great sense of dignity. This pride in her cultural background would heavily influence her debut novel. In the Bluest Eye, which we're going to do, of course, uh, well, I mean, do I need to... I guess I maybe I'll skip over that. But her next her next novel is Sulu, which I hear a lot about, so I might try this out. She tackles segregation in Sulu, which chronicles the friendship between two women who, much like the author, grew up in a small segregated village in Ohio. Song of Solomon. It has mythology of Morrison's youth, a veritable modern folktale pivoting on an eccentric, whimsically named milkman dead who spends his life trying to fly. Then, of course, we have Beloved, which is a ghost story quite unlike any other, a tale of guilt and love and the horrendous legacy of slavery. Beloved so moved Morrison's literary peers that 48 of them signed an open letter published in the New York Times demanding she be recognized for this major effort. Subsequently, the book won her a Pulitzer Prize. A year after publishing her next novel, Jazz, in 1992, she would become the very first African-American to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. And towards the end of the century, Morrison's work became increasingly eclectic. She not only published another finely crafted incendiary novel in Paradise, which systematically tracks the genesis of an act of mob violence, but she also published her first children's book, The Big Box. 
In 2003, she published Love, her first novel in five years, a complex meditation on family and the way one man fuels the obsessions of several women. The following year, she assembled a collection of photographs of school children taken during the era of segregation. What makes Remember the journey to school integration so particularly haunting is that Morrison chose to compose dialogue, imagining what the subjects of each photo may have been thinking. And then in 2008, she published A Mercy. When asked about her, so this is getting into The Bluest Eye. When asked about her motivations for writing The Bluest Eye in an interview, Morrison claimed that she wanted to remind readers how hurtful racism is, that's a quote, and that people are, again, quote, apologetic about the fact that their skin is so dark. Reminiscing on her own experience, she recalled, when I was a kid, we called each other names, but we didn't think it was serious, that you could take it in. Expanding on this point of self-esteem, Morrison elaborated that she wanted to speak on behalf of those who didn't catch that they were beautiful right away. She was deeply concerned about the feelings of ugliness. As seen throughout the Buddhist eye, this idea of ugliness is conveyed through a variety of characters. For example, Pekola, the main character of the book, wishes for blue eyes as a way to escape the oppression that results from her having dark skin. Through Pekola's characterization, Morrison seeks to demonstrate the negative impact racism can have on one's self-confidence and worth. As she concluded in her interview, she said she wanted people to understand what it was like to be treated that way. So that's her goal. When it first came out, which I actually have in Oprah, an Oprah's book club version, or I mm. borrowed it anyways, there's actually an afterword about her, and, and it was talking about how her experience several years later in this book and everything. So when it actually came out, it received minimal critical attention. But it was placed on many university reading lists in black studies departments, which promoted further recognition. She was, of course, praised for her handling of difficult themes. But the first major sign that the book would succeed was an extremely positive review in the New York Times in November 1970. Within classrooms across the country, so this gets into Sabrina, educators often <laughs> disagreed over whether or not the novel was appropriate for children. One African-American educator, founder of the IFE Academy of Teaching and Technology, Shakima Silveri, has stated that, quote, teaching novels like The Bluest Eye helps us break down barriers in students. After reading the book, I had a student who said that she is the product of incest. And I've had a student who said that she was molested by her uncle. Books allow us to help them heal in ways that we as educators couldn't help them heal on our own, end quote. In an interview, American Library Association editor Robert P. Doyle also recognized the potential of novels like The Bluest Eye to affect positive change within schools, stating that, quote, the book community realized that they have not only an opportunity, but a responsibility to engage the American public in a conversation about the First Amendment as it relates to books and literature. End quote. The Blue Eye has actually landed fifth on the American Library Association's list of most challenged books in 2006. It was the second most challenged. You know what? We should do a special on challenged books and see you what we've read that. on that list, Tom. I'll you add need to that. jot that down in the drive. I will add that to the drive while you get into the plot synopsis. Because I think that would be very interesting, yeah. It All was right. the second most challenged book of 2013 and the fourth most challenged book of 2014, according to the ALA. The reasons reported for challenges are, quote, offensive language, sexually explicit, unsuited to age group, and violence, end quote. So that's setting up, yeah, the bluest eye, what to, what to do there. I actually watched 
two interviews with Toni Morrison. One was like a snippet, and that's a snippet that you heard at the beginning of this episode. But another one was with Charlie Rose. And he was repeating, almost parroting another interviewer's question about, do you think you'll ever not write about race? And it was just very interesting how she tackled it. And I just grew in such regard and respect for Because she's like, that's an insulting question. Because, I mean, so what, you know, are you going to ask a white person if they ever are going to talk about race? That sort of thing. And Charlie Rose kind of just sat there and didn't really respond to anything. And then when she asked, you know, what do you mean by that question? He kind of hemmed and hawed about it. So, But I just thought that it was a really uh, great answer that she gave, and I grew in, res- in regard and respect for her as a writer, and I think I want to learn more about her as a person, and perhaps, even though the subject matter is unsettling, attempt to read more books. So here we go with the plot synopsis. This is what The Bluest Eye is all about. It has four seasons, so that's why I'll say random words like autumn which is where i'll start autumn the book is set in 1941 and much of it is narrated by a young african-american girl claudia mcteer claudia lives with her parents and her older sister frida a man named mr henry rents a room from her family and he likes to tease claudia and frida claudia mentions another african-american girl pecola who goes to stay with the mcteers after her father charlie breedlove tried to burn down the breedlove's home Pecola and Frida bond over an appreciation of Shirley Temple, whom Claudia dislikes. Claudia also dislikes white baby dolls, which people try to give her as gifts. While Pecola is staying with Claudia's family, she begins menstruating, which is actually seems random, but it's actually a key point. Pecola's family moves into an abandoned storefront. Her father, Charlie, drinks frequently and works very little. Her mother, whom Pecola calls Mrs. Breedlove, is a housekeeper for a white family. Mrs. Breedlove and Charlie fight violently, and Pecola tries to hide from her parents' fighting. Pecola wants to have blue eyes. She believes if she had blue eyes, her parents wouldn't fight anymore. Winter. At school, Pecola, Claudia, and Frida must deal with a classmate named Maureen Peel. Maureen is a lighter-skinned African-American child, and almost everyone loves her. Claudia and Frida are reluctant to trust her, and their reluctance is proved right. When she gets angry, Maureen is quick to insult Pecola, Claudia, and Frida. Claudia and Frida fight back, but Pecola does not. Spring. One day, Claudia comes home to find Frida crying because Mr. Henry, their family's boarder, tried to molest her. Their father tried to kill Mr. Henry, but now Frida is frightened because someone said she might be ruined. To avoid being ruined, the girls think Frida should drink alcohol, and they decide to get some from Charlie, Pecola's father. They find Pecola waiting outside the house where her mother works. Mrs. Breedwell invites him inside for a few minutes. They are challenged by a little white girl who lives there, and Pecola accidentally spills a pie. Mrs. Breedwell scolds Pecola harshly, but speaks gently to the little girl. The next two chapters describe the personal history of Mrs. Breedwell and Charlie. As a child, Mrs. Breedwell, whose first name is Pauline, suffered a foot injury which never fully healed. She was happy to leave her hometown when Charlie arrived. They had good times for a while, but now their relationship is mostly screaming and hitting each other. Charlie's chapter describes how he was abandoned by his mother as an infant. His great-aunt raised him, but she died when he was 14. Shortly after her funeral, Charlie's first sexual experience is interrupted when two white men catch him having sex with a girl. They insist Charlie keep going for their enjoyment. After Charlie runs away, he lives on the road for years, which is when he actually meets Pauline. They marry, but Charlie loses interest in being with only one woman. 
He also doesn't know how to be a father because he never had parents when he was growing up. One morning, as he comes home drunk, Charlie sees Pecola standing in a pose that reminds him of Pauline. He tries to flirt with Pecola, and then he rapes her. Pecola visits Soaphead Church, a fortune teller. She asks him to help her get blue eyes. Soaphead tricks Pecola into poisoning his landlady's elderly dog, telling her if the dog reacts to the treat she gives it, the Lord will give her blue eyes. The dog dies, and Pecola runs away, terrified. Summer to earn money to buy a new bicycle, Claudia and Frida travel the neighborhood, selling seeds. They overhear gossip in the neighborhood about Pecola. She is pregnant with Charlie's baby. Claudia and Frida are sad for Pecola and the baby, whom nobody seems to want. They decide to bury their saved-up money and seeds as an offering to protect Pecola's baby. They believe if the seeds grow, the baby will be fine. Pecola has lost her mind. She believes she has blue eyes, and she thinks everyone ignores her now because they are jealous of her beautiful eyes. In conversation with an invisible friend, Pecola admits Charlie raped her more than once. At the end of the book, Claudia is narrating once again. She says Pecola went crazy and the baby died. Claudia reflects sadly on the way some environments never seem to provide nourishment for seeds or people to grow the way they should. Well... Tom, did you did you like this? Which is an interesting question. I did. It the subject matter aside, I went knowing I went in knowing that it's uh, you know that it's Toni Morrison, therefore it was going to be well written. But I was blown away by like how vivid it is and um, how well established the characters are um i think in the middle of either talking to you or texting you i I texted that i had to remind myself that tony morrison doesn't necessarily um her novels don't necessarily they follow a plot but they're not plot centric i guess is the way to put it you know like the this jumps all over the place in terms of the timeline it switches back and forth between the perspectives of different characters um, and uh, even and there are even me- image, uh, images sorry uh, elements of magical realism in here beloved kind of takes that to another level but it, it would but like the way she kind of structures the book and then she's back and forth and back and forth and you're you're seeing like the novel or Pecola is kind of the focus of a lot of what's going on but you're, you're getting a lot of the perspectives of you know Claudia and um, and, and other characters and, and you tend to forget like Pecola is kind of the the person who this is all happening to in a way so like you kind of have to remind yourself there were a couple of times i did have to go check out the close notes just because i put the book down for a few days and i started reading it and i was like wait what had happened where was i so just kind of as a refresher but not in the way that like you know um i had to completely read the cliff notes and the book to understand exactly what was going on but it can be hard to follow in places but i really did enjoy it I, yeah, so the like, and I can't remember if it's on this show that I've talked about it or I've just talked about it at school, but the the like question is sometimes difficult to say, you know, because <laughs> it, it, were you liking it for literature's sake or, you know, what was actually going on? And so I think there are, you know, maybe enjoy, you know, that sort of thing. So I really... I also, I would agree with you that I went in, you know, Toni Morrison, I was prepared because I did read Beloved, and I assume that the majority of her books, if not all, are not uplifting novels. Mm-hmm. So I was, I think, emotionally prepared as well as people telling me in my little secret society that it was an intense novel. But I liked it, and yes, 
I think it's it's very well written. So there you go. Yeah, it's a good. It's also like because we also we talked about. It, I know how the cage bird sings. It's a good novel if you are studying segregation or, or that era, the Jim Crow era, especially since like if you're looking at from the very very cursory overview perspective that we often get in like a in a history class and and no offense to history teachers just like if you look at like a history textbook it's really cursory and it's like you know you forget that between plessy versus ferguson and brown versus the board of education you have like 85 years of history that gets glossed over in many in many cases in like in like an american history textbook um and getting to that era of just the daily lives or the struggles of uh, African-Americans who were living under Jim Crow and, and living under these conditions, um, getting it through either a memoir or a novel is a really, really good gateway into really understanding what was going on beyond your, you know, paragraph, if that, in a textbook. I'll say yes. And unfortunately, I think that it's resonant today, but that's one of our questions at the end. Mm -hmm. So once we get to that, well, you spoiled it a little bit. You went on and on about, you know, her style and everything, because that was one of my questions. Because Mm -hmm. with Toni Morrison, and I feel like, you know, maybe I need to reread Beloved, but this one was interesting because you're going, number one, the perspective is not the person's perspective you would first think about it being. You think because it's about Pekola that Pekola is the one talking. Yeah. You brought up the fact that she's the main character, yet we don't see her a lot, I would say. There are moments where it does switch to first-person narrative, especially in the Pauline Breedwolf section. There's a moment where it's almost like an interview between two characters, uh, kind of the spirit and Pekola or, you know, Pekola maybe and herself, an internal monologue of some sort. And then you do have those sections, those few chapters where it begins and you're like, I don't know who this character is or what this person has to do, but it threads through, especially with like Sopad. You're like, how does this, how does Sopad have anything to do with what's going on? So all that to say say that there is a lot of stuff that happens in this novel it doesn't follow a narrative thread to a certain extent you are able to follow something but it changes format and style how does it help and hinder perhaps or well let's not even go that way just how does it mm, i was gonna say impact again i'm trying to be sensitive to your feelings how does it affect how you read the novel and do you think that Toni Morrison gets away with it just because it's Toni Morrison and she has such a way with words and, and she's really skilled and she knows what she's doing? It's a good question. Um, well, to start off regarding Beloved, I think it would take me a few, at least a few more years of teaching it to really, really fully understand it enough to bring it as a book on the show. So you've got a while. Um, so there's no worry. Um, no, because like I like I said, I've only read it twice, and this is an, this is a book that I think you could read twice and still uncover things. It's just that layered. The Soaphead Church is a really interesting. Um, is really really good example of how there's like uh, who this of how this works because when we're introduced to him he's this fortune teller psychic type of person and it's at the very end and Pekka goes there and he's 
he basically, yeah, you're right. He po- she, he tricks her into poisoning this elderly dog, and you know the dog's gonna die. Right. Like once once he starts setting it up, like you see what he's gonna do. But before we even get to that scene with Pekka and Soaphead, we get like quite a bit of his backstory, where he came from, and and and, and such. And uh, and now by that, it's late in the novel. By then, we've gotten the backstories of all the adult characters or, or the ones who play or intersect with Pekka in her life. So we've come to expect it. So it's kind of a pattern that she follows through it. Like, you know, we, we get like all these chapters on um, Mrs. Breedlove and Kali um, and, and, you know, and then and how that leads up to what's going on in the present. And um, at first I was kind of thrown by it because I was, it made it a little hard to follow. But once I realized what was going on, I found it was very rich because it, it gives you the, um, the history of the characters. First of all, it rounds them out. It shows you common experiences, either literally or like figuratively, like in tone and things like that. And it provides, she's providing a, snapshot if you will or a look at the experiences of not just this girl and her parents and friends and stuff but of like an entire community or group of people so we we get that and and for for a novel that is at least my copy is um 206 pages give or take she does it very concisely i think of uh east of eden by john steinbeck which does a lot of this. It's a lot of backstory. It's a lot of this sweeping epic of, of this family and these families out in uh, uh, California. But that book's like more than double the size of this. So what Steinbeck takes like four or 500 pages to do, Morrison is doing in two, and then she's doing it like really, really richly. So so I think it really does contribute to the uh, to it because it, it gives us – it gives us these really, really well-rounded characters, and we we can see, especially in somebody like like um, is it Charlie or Collie? I don't know. Okay. I looked up how to pronounce Pecola, but I didn't look uh-huh. up how to pronounce Charlie. Okay, I'll say Charlie. You were saying Charlie. I'll say Charlie. Um, Charlie's reprehensible in terms of what he does to her. You know, there, there's no forgiveness to that. But at the same time, Morrison makes him more than just a villainous character. And gives us all of the things that contribute and lead up to that moment and how he gets there and, and how it's – you don't let him off the hook, and you, but you feel a certain amount of – I guess it's empathy or something. You, you, you certainly feel something there that there's a sadness that goes along with it for him and as well as, as, well as her and as, and, and as well as anger about her. I'm seeing that it's Charlie. But, okay. Yeah, let's see, H. Just to double check on that. Okay. I think, you know, to answer part of my question, I think part of the reason why we allow this to happen is because it's Toni Morrison. I think that she has paid her dues, but which is actually interesting. It's because it's, this is her debut novel. Yeah. I don't know if reading it then, if we would have been in the, on the same wavelength as we are now. 
because I think about, you know, Vanity Fair, which we did two episodes ago. Of course, there's history, but it's so directly connected. Like you say pit and then you go to Queens Crawley and then you talk about the pits. But the way she does it is like something was happening and then it's like a full stop. And then we're like flashing back to some sort of time. And I think to a certain extent, you trust her because you know that she is not just putting it there. Like she's going to get back to it. There's a purpose for what she's doing it. And, but I just wonder if that would be true of everyone. You know, you might be a little distrustful. Of what does this have to do with anything? I mean, I kind of do that when I read my Batgirl comics, the modern ones. I'm like, okay, you're putting these details out. Are we going to get back to that? You know, if you don't, then you've done a disservice to me. So I think a lot of it does have to do with the trust of the Toni Morrison name. I was a little, and I, and I think maybe that's the purpose of it, a little jarred with the, the changes in the format with the first person, you know, itali- well, at least the, the printing was italicized in the mm-hmm. quote or even at the very end, like it was just different because I'm getting used to reading it a certain way. Even the Tom, what, the Dick and Jane novel, yeah, uh, Dick and Jane will things that, you know, I was getting used to that and that sort of thing. But it was jarring and perhaps I, that might be, purposeful i think because maybe she has you just moving back and forth because these set pieces are moving back and forth and it's not like we're in a very stable family situation anyway so maybe like in a way her writing is is getting you to feel a little bit of that discomfort that the people within the novel are actually feeling but it was something that i think it just really kept me on my toes. I think with sometimes with novels, I can coast through, like I get into a good groove. I feel like I I did that with The Power of One recently. Like I just get into a good groove and I read it. But this one, like I really had to take my time and, you know, figure out setting and and what's been going on. Just like you said, you were going to your your buddy Cliff, you Mm -hmm. know, thinking about that. You have to look. I was actually looking at the primer and seeing what was being said because everything, the typology was, the spaces were cut out. Yeah, so I think it it makes you slow down and appreciate the novel despite its 200 and odd pages. So I I think that she does something really wonderful here, whether that was her intention or not. Of course, we can never say unless we talked with her. But (laughs) but yeah, it was certainly one of the most different, I think, novels that, that I've read recently. Well, let's talk about these primers. Dick and Jane, that's the right the right title, correct? Yeah, um, I, I looked it up really briefly while you were talking there, uh, just to see when Dick and Jane books were first published, because they were considered primers or primers, however, you, um, however you pronounce it, for reading in elementary schools, uh, starting in the 1930s and up through about the 50s or 60s, when reading curriculum started to change for lower level grades. So this is 1941. So we are pretty much like it probably is the standard issue book that children in the country are given to read from. And they are very, um, well, I mean, they're very, very simple, simplistically written, simple sentences. I'll read, if you like, I can read the entire thing that's on the very first page of the book that like, cause, cause she excerpts the entire thing throughout the, throughout the novel. Um, it's like, here is the house. It is green and white. It has a red door. It is very pretty. Here is the family. Mother, father, Dick, and Jane live in the green and white house. They are very happy. See Jane. She has a red dress. She wants to play. Who will play with Jane? See the cat. It goes meow meow. Come and play. Come play with Jane. The kitten will not play. See mother. 
Mother is very nice. Mother, will you play with Jane? Mother laughs. Laugh, mother, laugh. See father. He is big and strong. Father, will you play with Jane? Father is smiling. Smile, father, smile. See the dog. Bow wow goes the dog. Do you want to play with Jane? See the dog run. Run, dog, run. Look, look. Here comes a friend. The friend will play with Jane. They will play a good game. Game. Play, Jane, play. And I know that in the books, they would have, like, each sentence would have an illustration above it. And But, like, when she gets into the second, like, on the next page, she gets rid of all of the punctuation except for the hyphens between green and white and meow, meow. And all of the capital letters except for the H in here that starts the very first sentence. And then she repeats it again where all of the spaces are taken out between the words. So it's just a jumble of letters. So that, that's how it's shown in the book. But yeah, it was these very like, you know, very basic, basic structure of, uh, of sentences and things that, that they would, kids would have to read back, you know, to learn phonics and, and other aspects of language. And Dick and Jane were white, correct? Yes. Yeah. It's, okay. it's, it's a white. Yes, it's like, it's like a white, like leave it to beaver type of family. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that was startling to begin. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that I just thought, what sort of novel have I gotten into? But it pops up repeatedly, especially mm-hmm. just that it starts to the lines start to blur and run together. So what sort of social commentary is implicit in Morrison's superimposing these banalities describing this white family and its activities upon the tragic story of the destruction of our young black girl, Pecola? I'd have to go back through like the book and see if it's consistent throughout the whole book. But I did notice at least as I was flipping through it in at least the first few chapters where she does this. So what she does is she takes a part of that passage that I read and it's all jumbled together again. And she takes a chunk of it, maybe like a, a few lines and puts it as the heading over like whatever the chapter is. And if you restart reading the chapter, it relates somehow to the, to the part of the Dick and Jane book that she's quoting from. All right. So the, the one of the chapters that starts on page um, thirty three is uh, starts with here is the house that is green and white. It has it's hard to read because it's just basically all caps, no spaces. It's very pretty, pretty, pretty. It's very pretty. It's very pretty, pretty, pretty. And then the next sentence of actual prose is there is an abandoned store in the southeast corner of Broadway and Thirty Fifth Street in Lorain, Ohio. It does not recede into the background of leaden sky nor harmonize with the gray frame houses and black telephone poles around it. So she's describing the store, the the storefront that Pecola and Charlie and Miss Breedlove live in, in as a juxtaposed with this ideal that society or whatever the system of you know this 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 ideal of whiteness that's held up to them. And, and so you're, you're seeing like, okay, like here's what, here's what their life is. And here's what here's these characters are versus what was essentially thrown at them as a, the ideal to which to aspire and be the something they'll never be, you know? So it's, it's almost um, subversively like oppressive, you know, the idea that, that they're told like, you know, this, this, this perfect thing that you're learning, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's mundane white kids and you'll never be a mundane white kid. And, uh, therefore there's, there's a lack of perfection. I think you, there was something in the, a plot point about like a doll, um, you know, how one of them doesn't like white dolls, but like Pekka is like obsessed with Shirley Temple. And there's that whole thing in the beginning where, 
Um, Pekka like, drinks like all the milk in the house or something. Not because she really, really likes milk, but because there's like this Shirley Temple cup and she's like obsessed with drinking from it and things like that. So, and, and that's where like the blue eyes and things like that. So you see that, that ideal of that impossible ideal. And then you see Pekala like wanting blue eyes and all these things. So it's, I think it's a really, really good way to introduce it because it, it, it's jarring enough that it makes you kind of think. And then you kind of come, you keep coming back to it and you're like, why do I keep seeing this? And once you start to figure out that like, there's this juxtaposition and there's this, um, you know, we're contrasting what is supposed to be like the norm or the ideal or whatever we want to call it versus like the reality of the, the very, very dark reality of things. It's, it's a very, very good device, literary device. Yeah. And I think, you know, looking at that, the initial one, Jane's, only conflict or her struggle in that little paragraph is to find a friend to play with. Yeah. And so, you know, contrasting that, of course, with these actual struggles that these black characters are going through, especially Pekla and her family, is is rather interesting. It's interesting also, once you read the whole novel, to go back, to go back to that initial one and just see, like, oh, yeah, you know, all these things, the mom, how pleasant she seems for Jane and the father, and you're like, well, Peckle didn't have that. Peckle didn't have that. So all of that to go back and, and almost revisit that. But yeah, I, I agree with everything you said, unfortunately. But you know, it's just weird because when you first start off, it's just so that's not how I expected the first page to start was with this little thing. And yeah, me neither. Really frenetic and, and crazy. Why do you think it gets so why do you think it starts to blur together like that? Why don't why doesn't it she keep like the general punctuation and everything? I don't no, entirely. I want to say that, like, you, part of your question was, how does Morrison's powerful language, both highly specific and lyrical, comment on the inadequacy of correct English, quote, and the way in which it masks and negates entire worlds of beauty and pain? So I want to say that maybe one of those things that she does is to take a swipe at proper grammar, English, and construction, especially literary speaking. I mean, she's not the first person to use vernacular or slang or anything like that. But, you know, the idea that you're kind of taking a swipe at the idea that, you know, the, the classic novel has a certain style to it. And, and I'm going against that. The everything jumbled together. There's something very violent about it. It's really, ex, ex, um, it's not ecstatic. Jeez. Um, it's really frenetic, frenetic. It's really rushed, but it's also something very violent about all these words slammed together and these letters slammed together in a way that that if you if you slow down you you have to slow down and and really look to comprehend what is what is being there and um maybe that's also what the violence in this book is like too you have to slow down and like really take a look and consider what's happening to these people um especially you know pekla and stuff and to really really comprehend as opposed to just being simply shocked by it or or maybe uneasy by it that's just my off the top of my head my kind of hypothesis about it. yeah and perhaps there's almost a domino effect because once you start it like it just gets so fast yeah like the locomotive you can't slow it down and so maybe those are the points of the novels where we get to see i almost called her petunia <laughs> pauline and charlie and just that that their past very much affects pecola and especially with Charlie, I think, as we'll discuss later, it, it was like this momentum that 
kind of kept going up until this climax of raping his daughter, I feel. So yeah. perhaps, perhaps, yeah. Quiet, this is a quote from the book, of course. Quiet as it's kept, there were no marigolds in the fall of 1941. We thought at the time that it was because Peckle was having her father's baby that the marigolds did not grow. With these lines, Morrison's child narrator Claudia McTeer invites the reader into a troubling community secret, the incestuous rape of her 11-year-old friend Peckle. What are the advantages of telling Peckle's story from a child's point of view? There's a there's still a sad innocence about Claudia and um what is her sister's name? Frida. Frida, yeah. Frida. Uh you know, the fact that they at the end of summer they um bury their saved up money and they hopefully like if the seeds grow the baby's gonna be fine. Like it's a very yeah, that childlike way of the view of the world and it it's very sad in that regard. Yeah, it's interesting how like we get we get their perspective, we get Peckless perspective. So maybe just like showing showing what happens in it, it maybe it amplifies the tragedy of it all. Because um, I think if we were just getting Peckless perspective, it'd still be very tragic and very shocking, very sad. But this just adds another another layer to it. And maybe the adult perspective would be so infused with opinions that it'd be hard to trust. Whereas with yeah. the, the child's perspective, I think there's sort of wonderment and trying to figure it out, but maybe having this like really naked and, and true perspective on it. And yes, there's some like magic to it, right? Because they're, mm-hmm. they're feeling like it was one or the other person's fault for, for killing that baby. But yeah, I, because even they were, they heard, right, whispers from the adults and everything when she, so you can only assume that there'd be like a lot of negative stuff, you know, from adults saying, oh, she was yeah. asking for it, probably that kind of stuff. And, and so maybe it was just um, a better and a, and a truer perspective to have the, the children narrating. I'm trying to remember if like, if it, when, when she's narrating this at the very, very beginning before autumn starts, if she's like an adult looking back. But we are. But she's trying to keep that perspective of the child. Um, and I do like the last line of that that last prologue. There's really nothing more to say except why. But since why is difficult to handle, must one must take refuge in how? I think that's a really really good way to put like how we go through this whole novel of, you know, how these things happen. But we have to figure out like maybe that'll lead us to why. Um, I did. I did wonder a little bit, like, because, like I said, if, if if on some level she's an adult looking back at this, but she's also trying to kind of capture what it was like to be eleven at the time and have this perspective. It's very, and uh, this may be a coincidence, or she might be directly drawing from Harper Lee, but it's very To Kill a Mockingbird because Scout's narrating the novel as an adult, but she's also trying to give us the perspective through the eyes of herself when she was a child, as opposed to having adult scout narrated and be adult scout or Atticus narrate that novel or something. So that sort of structure reminded me of that. And I thought that having the kid, it's just, it, yeah, it just, it deepens the, I think it deepens it in a way. And I think you're right. I think it gives you a, it gives you a perspective without judgment or commentary, but the comment and whatever commentary is there is, there's very, it's a very innocent sort of commentary because this person's reaching sort of reaching understanding on some level as they go through just like we are i'd also mention persepolis oh yeah because that was a similar perception yeah you know looking back and, and one of the questions we talked about then is can we trust the because the, in that sense it's a memoir mm-hmm. and so you do have to ask yourself how much can you trust 
the the particular the narrator here by mm-hmm. seems reasonable. Yeah. In what ways does Morrison show how Pecola's environment and perhaps American society as a whole are hostile to Pecola's very existence? Well, there's some obvious ones like the extreme poverty in which she lives, the desperation of of her family, um, the abuse she suffers. You know, she comes from somebody who was mistreated and and it's a really interesting psychological study even though i have no background in psychology but with american society as a whole there's two or three instances that i think of one is the dick and jane book i think that kind of casts a shadow over it you know the idea that that american society is hostile to her very existence by on the very basic level of that they are taught either either explicitly or implicitly that they are inferior you know in school I believe sometime around Brown versus the Board of Ed, there was a part of the interview process of black children in schools was like having them look at dolls of different color and pick the doll that they thought was the best one. And, you know, like, and it was showing how like inferior these schools were because they were picking white dolls or something. I'm trying to remember. I saw a movie about it once. It was years ago though. Um, So that aside though, I think, I think it is like, you know, so that's American society, but then you have um, the part where she drops the pie Mm -hmm. and her mother like lays into her, but she treats the kid really, really kind of not nicely, but like she's a lot more gentle with the kid. Now, granted that is the child of her employer. So, uh, from an adult perspective, you understand if, like, if I don't want to get fired, I have to treat this kid, you know, whatever. But at the same time, that also shows you the hostility toward her, their existence as a, as a group of people, because it's like, you know, you know, I have to, I have to tiptoe around these, you know, these these white people who are, who will fire me at the drop of a hat for like, you know, doing the wrong thing or something or saying or, or crossing them somehow, even if the person is wrong. Um, and then there was an incident, and I can't remember who the character, the who the who the one of our characters was, but they were with this boy, and the boy like killed a dog or a cat or something, and blamed it on Peckle, and blamed it on Peckle. Okay, so I'm trying to remember like who was it, Peckle, or was it like uh, Charlie, or was it um, oh, what's his name, the the fortune teller, uh, so so pet. Uh, but it was Pecola, yeah, and, and that that's even a, a, like a worse scene too, because it's. Um, but I, and I don't remember if it was a black kid or a white kid. I'm trying to remember the incident in my head. Is it Lewis Junior? I think Geraldine's so. Son? Yeah. Um, and so Geraldine is the one that's lighter skinned. Yeah. Okay. So I, she might be making commentary about that as well, because they talk about Maureen and and stuff. Yeah. So well, yeah, I think so, there definitely is because a, yeah. a huge point of Peckle is that she's really dark. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so she's so she's kind of layering it on there. You see different incidents where like you know the idea that like the society around them is like stacked up against them, whether the fact that they're black or poor. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's the living situation, the environment. You know, going from the south to the north, I think changed things to a certain extent. I, I don't really know if you can say which one was was better for them. And that was more because Peckle is, I, I would say, I guess, first generation northern or first generation Ohioan. Mm-hmm. Um, what else of, of the environment? Yeah, I think the people in the environment were not the best. Uh, Claudia and Frida, to a certain extent. I mean, they tried to 
help her out, but certainly, you know, Maureen is, is not a kindly person. And getting kicked out of the house, uh, all of that, it just, yeah, it's like building and, and pushing her down more and more and more, unfortunately. Yeah. So the title of the novel, of course, refers to Pecola Breedwell's intense desire for blue eyes, and she believes that she has them in the end. She believes herself ugly and unworthy of love and respect, but she's convinced that her life would be magically transformed if she possessed blue eyes. How does this racial self-loathing actually corrode the lives of Pecola and her parents, Charlie and Pauline Breedwell? I think with Charlie, it's it's probably easy to see it first when you look at his backstory and the scene where like he's with this woman and it's a pretty romantic scene up to a point like they're kind of flirting and then they they kind of mm-hmm. they, they sneak away and they go off into a field and yep. it's meant to be a you know i'm like reading this like it's actually a really beautifully written scene i think it's meant to be very romantic which is why it's so jarring when a lynch mob shows up right and this, aren't they hunting or something yeah yeah they're like and they chase them out of there and like you know they 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 ridicule him for the fact that he's like a close or whatever and that just if there was if there was self-loathing there before it just adds to it to the point where um you know things pile on and pile on and pile on and that's why i said you don't necessarily there's no justification for what he does to pecola but in the very least you see his backstory and you see the you see as she says in the beginning of the book like how it got there um which i think is very important to his development of a character yeah absolutely and pauline uh, maybe pauline i would say at a very surface level comes from her being a servant to white people mm. and having to be an employee and inferior through empl- employment um and relying on these people for a living um and then your know, peckle again i think we've already mentioned quite a bit about her you know um unless you want to add, add something about her and like you know how like more specific no no, I think yeah, it's it's all about seeing. I think that other and and you know with the doll with Shirley Temple and and feeling like Shirley's got this this great life and look at her little friend that dances alongside her and yeah. So I, I think I support everything you said about that. I think with Pauline and this almost gets into the next question regarding physical beauty. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of it also has to do with her foot because remember it didn't heal properly yeah so i think that was and that's not necessarily like racial self-hatred but i think it's it's self-hatred period you know and and just thinking that she's ugly and and not worth anything and then along comes this guy that sweeps her off her feet to a certain extent so yeah i mean at, at a certain point morrison actually states that through her narrator of course that romantic love and physical beauty quote are probably the most destructive ideas in the history of human thought how do the lives of our characters actually bear this statement out and do you think that these are concepts that are generated from within or imposed on us by society i want to say it's both it's like, but I think your second question there is almost like a chicken and the egg type of question mm. because society imposes these standards of beauty on us. And we're, let's just talk in very, very general terms aside from your race. We could all talk about like, just, we could talk about this just in terms of women 
and standards of beauty and, and unrealistic t- expectations placed on women as far as beauty is concerned. But at the same time, how is it that some people might feel that way prior to even setting their eyes on a television commercial or an issue of Cosmo or something, you know? So I think, I mean, I think it is imposed on us by society in a way that's more implicit. And that's why it feels, it seems to feel like it's generated from within, but I don't think society is completely to blame for all of this, this self-loathing that a lot of people have. You know, and I think when it comes to being ashamed or, or being like self-loathing about your race, it's, I think it, I think that is more of society than you know your own personal personal issues because of the way society has systemically told you and everybody like you that you are inferior, and then and also the structure of society, especially in that time in our in our society in the 1940s, was such that the social and economic structure existed to specifically keep those people in that position there, you know, the, the, the idea that, you know, uh, Jim Crow, like really just continue to damage, you know, that portion of our society. Um, but then you've got like individual characters, like I think a Maureen and her sense of superiority over somebody like Pecola. And we were talking about how, like perhaps it was her lighter skin that, that made her feel like she was dominant in some way or another i think they've got this almost broken view of what love is i I think love for a lot of these characters is being like accepted but it's not like because i think that's true right is like really accepting someone for all their faults and defects or you know whatever Mm -hmm. it may be whoever they are but it's almost like a one-time thing for a lot of these characters and then it just fades because it seems really nice in the beginning for Pauline and Charlie, but then it gets really abusive. And even like the the sex scene that occurs, because I think she has one in her mind, which may have happened, but like early on in their relationship about what it was like. Uh-huh. But now apparently he just like, he'll have sex with her, whether she, she, she might be sleeping. And like, uh-huh. ba- I mean, basically using her as an object almost. So it's like, there's no, I, I don't necessarily think that that, was love at all though both of them may have thought initially that it may have been and i think unless i'm confusing it with another another novel i think he was excited for her to be pregnant the first time but then once like it came out like he quickly realized she came out pecola she quickly realized that it wasn't it because he had no example of a father figure or anything like that. So that quickly faded as well. So it's almost like it quickly fades this, this love and yeah, beauty. I mean, I think you're right that it's both. I think it's gotten worse now that society really imposes on us, this idea of beauty and we do it to ourselves also because with social media and things like that, it's just comparison, 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 and you know, comparison destroys contentment. So I think we're just always trying to, see well I think that's beautiful and because I believe that that's my idea of beauty and I don't fit that image then I clearly am not beautiful so I I think we see that here and a lot of it has to do with skin color skin tone excuse me um, amongst the the black characters yeah it's it's a self-perpetuating notion in many ways Um, you had a question here of what positive visions of beauty and love does the novel offer this the relationship between the two sisters seems to be very genuine 
I know I know that we don't get a lot of Claudia and Frida, but they don't seem like mean people and they seem to like be companions for one another in a way that a lot of the other characters in the novel don't have aren't or don't have for one another. You know, they're still kids. And they still act like kids, but there doesn't seem to be as much cruelty in those two as we have in in some of the other characters. Or maybe I'm misreading that. I would also say, well, you know, I'm sure they have some sibling spats, but yeah, certainly not like Mrs. Breedwell and Charlie. Yeah. I would also say how the prostitutes treat Pecola is actually rather beautiful as well because they just treat her like a human. I mean, they mm-hmm. don't see what Pecola is seeing, and, and I feel like that's actual love that she receives from them. And it's interesting because, of course, you strike prostitutes, oh, my gosh. You know, you would automatically have this sort of knee-jerk of a negative opinion of them. Yeah. But I think that, that it's just a, a great place for her. Yes, they're doing some interesting things. But it, it's a great place for her because she, I think, is fully accepted and loved there. I think it's interesting that Morrison is going to that old standby of the house of ill repute being a sign that this is a bad neighborhood. <laughs> sure. It, it, it kind of plays into the economics shown in the novel. And she and and she kind of befriends them because is it Charlie or somebody else goes there to be with one of the prostitutes who are like Isn't it Mr. Henry? I think it's yeah, Mr. Henry. Yeah, so there's almost like a circumstance surrounding that as well. Uh, well, the next has to do with, we, we talked about love, we talked about race, so of course we have social class. Mm-hmm. So what role does social class actually play in this particular novel? Within the within the black community of black characters, there's a sense of that some are better off than others. Like, Pecola's family is really poor, to the point where they're living like in an abandoned storefront, as opposed to, you know, and she ends up being... Um, taken in by the McTeers, right? Um, after, right. you know, the idea that, that one family can or has the means to take on charity in that way, you know, and, uh, and how, um, and how the adults look at and talk about Pecola versus how the two girls do, I think also speaks into the social class of things, especially like since the way that like, you know, they kind of, if they feel sorry for her they kind of reject her or shun her after like it comes out like what charlie's been doing but the girls themselves like they seem to be like i said they 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 seem to be a little bit more you know feel a little bit more for her and uh, we were talking a little earlier about like you know the narrators being children as opposed to adults i think this is where you get like that really interesting um this is where it might work because you don't get the sort of looking down upon this person because of like the circumstances like you know because there's a lot i mean our society is full of victim blaming in this regard yeah Um, especially in cases of of people who've been raped you know and uh and and so there's that and then uh with the other classes you know we see on a very basic levels like mrs breedlove's job uh but we also see it um how like soap had has this business and he's just basically he's cheating people out of their money so he can basically like you know move up in the world um you know so the idea that that he that he will will do that just so that he can get ahead i think that's an important commentary on uh on on social class society economics and things like that yeah i you know it oh it seems like 
Well, first of all, yeah, they're kicked out out outdoors, as they say, because Chali is just drunk. He can't keep a job. He's he's violent and everything. And so I'm sure the whole neighborhood already knows about that. And then when Pekka gets pregnant, I think that's like another nail in the in the family. And it seems like I've got a phrase as well because I feel like it could come out very poorly. But it seems like when people might be on the lower edge of society anyways, that any opportunity potentially to like be better than somebody else is something that they're going to latch on to. And I even think like in the Christian sense, right, you've got that parable of the Pharisee who went to pray in the temple and the tax collector. And the tax collector is saying you know, forgive me, I, I'm a sinner. And the Pharisee is basically like saying, look at all the wonderful stuff I've done, and I may sin, but I'm, at least I'm not that guy. So I think to a certain extent, you know, putting the breed wolves down, pushing them down is a way for some of the the people in that neighborhood to elevate themselves because they're like, well, at least, you know, we have a job, at least we don't have a daughter who was raped by her father and is now pregnant, that sort of thing too. Yeah, it's almost like the bully hierarchy. Mm. Like, you know, there's a bully and there's a victim, but it's not always that cut and dry because that victim might turn around and bully somebody else because they're being picked on. I know I'm putting it in very, very simplistic terms, but yeah, you're right. There's like you find somebody who could be inferior in some way to it and and you elevate yourself. You're right. Like by saying at least I'm not that person. Yeah. And I mean, we do that in our society now too. Oh, absolutely. You know, there, there's, there's also the sense that, like, and like with with stuff at church, like preying on those who are inferior, you know, taking advantage of them, mm-hmm. because you're, because in the case of Pekula, she's a little girl who wants, right. I mean, something impossible, but she's a very sad little girl, and instead of an adult figure who could be a not necessarily a savior, but a person of comfort. You know, the person who maybe takes her in or maybe makes her feel a little bit better or maybe helps her in some way, he takes advantage of her mm. because he because it will help him just get a little bit more, a little bit more. And that's very realistic. There are a lot of people who do that. And there are a lot I of fear. people. Yeah. Oh, you go ahead. Well, there's just a lot of people who would blame, blame the breed loves for their own lot in life. Okay. The... Uh... I would say that – what was I going to say? I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Well, I interrupted you, so I'm sorry for uh, for that. If there were – I would be f- very fearful for Pekula if there were a sequel, no- sequel novel to this because I, I think, yeah, that she would be just in a really, a really bad position. I mean she's already emotionally distraught, but I think just people would be taking advantage of her in, in different ways and I think – uh, unfortunately, I just I don't know that I see her story having a happy ending at all. The only comfort I think is is that in her mind, however broken it might be, that she feels like she's finally reached that um, beauty status and, and she sees those blue eyes, I guess, when she looks at her. So at least maybe she has released that self-hatred, but she's also like really alone. So I guess it depends on the amount of hope you see in that ending there. Mm-hmm. Well, this novel is set in a Midwestern industrial town, Lorraine, Ohio, which is actually Morrison's own birthplace, as I said in her bio. But Pauline and Charlie, 
Breloff are transplanted Southerners, and several key scenes in the novel are actually set in the South. How does Morrison set up comparisons between a northern black community and the southern black way of life, and what values were lost in the migration north for the Breedloves? Yeah, so I believe, and I believe, I'm just looking up something here. It's reflective of a period in African American history called the Great Migration Mm. in the American South between uh, the end of the Civil War, the middle of the 20th century. The percentage of the African American population living in the South, like halved, you know, and, and because there was just that much, that many people escaping the South and leaving to the North, um, as you know, um, and uh, it kind of it bottomed out in like 1970, and it's been slowly creeping back up since then, but not by very, very much. But there's like a precipitous drop from of of the number of African Americans living in the South from eight. 1992 about yeah 1970 you see it drop from about 89 percent of the Af- or, sorry you see about 90 percent of, of the african-americans living in the country were living in the south and then in 1970 it's only 53 percent so there's definitely you're right there's definitely going to be this this con- this con- contrast between these two particular um places and lorraine ohio is, is uh along lake erie uh I guess it would be a suburb of Cleveland. I don't know how far away from Cleveland it is. The Southern Black Way of Life, it seems... It, it, some of the scenes actually reminded me, in the South, reminded me a little bit of Beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene with... The scene where he's younger and he's... Those men come upon them and everything mm-hmm. and hunting him, essentially hunting him, even though they weren't necessarily or mistreating him, um, was not as brutal as the scenes we get with um, Setha in Beloved, where she's like, you know, hunted down in the barn and like assaulted and then hunted and has to like, and then hunted by her, her owner, because this is still before the Civil War, her owner, and dragged back across uh, from Ohio into Kentucky at one point has to escape. Like, you know, it's, it's not as brutal as that, but there are, there are still shades of that in, in these scenes. Like, you know, it's still, he still has to be like on the run and at night when he's like leaving, leaving the South and, and Charlie's leaving the South and like headed, headed North. So there's a parallel to that. And as the conditions have not improved as much as you would think, considering, um, you know, the war and everything that happened, I don't know. I guess I, the, trying to figure out like what comparison she's making between this this community here and, and, and the community in the south is like one harsher than the other or is there more opportunity up north or you know or, or, is, or is how I don't know what do you what do you think I'm gonna punt it back to you yeah before I answer I did because I was trying to look for my evidence on this answer but I did see on page 121 it says one winter Pauline discovered she was pregnant when she told Charlie he surprised her by being pleased so I was correct that he was in fact happy I think with the south I, I'm looking at this I'm I'm in her chapter in fact it's more occupied with taking care of the family and I think family matters I mean even with Pauline she is the eldest i believe and so she's the one keeping house it says she was taking care of her the twins chicken and pie as they were called Mm -hmm. and yeah i I think it just seemed like family was was the main thing that people cared about and even if you look at charlie he was really close with his great aunt and 
um, family, that whole scene there at the funeral was just really family-based. But when you go up, you go up to the north, that seems to be left behind. And it's more about reaching status, the job opportunities, of course, and maybe um, more like financial reasons and concerns. So I would say that that would be the dichotomy between the two locations and how the, the breed loves changed. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is they go from, it's it's not like they go all the way to Ohio. So in, in right around the same chapter. So at the beginning, they go from Alabama to Kentucky and then they end up in Ohio. And she talks very, um, and maybe it's just nostalgia painting it as from Pauline's point of view. She has a very rosy look upon her time in Kentucky. You know, um, she describes a yard bounded by a once white fence against which Pauline's mother planted flowers in which they kept a few chickens. Um, you know, life kind of goes on, but he says the relocation was especially comfortable to Pauline, who was old enough to leave school. And, you know, they get jobs and then, um, but then they eventually have to, uh, they eventually have to move. You know, she eventually makes her way north and things do get harsher. But it's interesting how, like, you wonder how much of that is colored with nostalgia considering her certain. Uh, her current situation. Well, let's move on to the most violent, <sighs> darkest, yeah. and upsetting portion of the novel. And, well, it once was quite enough, but then when you realize actually that it had happened more than once, and in my sick brain, I was actually trying to figure out when it would have happened. Mm -hmm. I couldn't tell if it was before the kitchen incident or after. But anyway, in her... Um, her discourse at the very end. But yeah, so, so let's talk about Charlie Breedlove. So Morrison is obviously, she, she's condemning his actions. But as you said at the top of the hour, she resists dehumanizing him. So she doesn't villainize him, I think, as, as you said. If rape of one's daughter is an unimaginable crime, can one at least trace the events and resulting emotions that made it possible for Charlie to actually commit this brutal act? On some level, I think, yes. I mean, from a layman's perspective and not necessarily knowing the psychology of somebody who is a, a rapist in this way, you definitely see a lot of things that inform the way that Charlie goes through his life. It's not like... You know, it's not like he's an otherwise got an otherwise like perfect life, and all of a sudden it's like you know, oh, I'm gonna rape my daughter. It, it's more like you see like all of these things that 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 have happened to him. But at the same time, I don't think she wants you to be believe that he's a victim of circumstance. Totally, like that there is something that there is something reprehensible about him. It's hard. What's hard about this is that we as an audience want to dehumanize him and we want to hate him because of what he does and she makes him a fully realized character i don't think it i don't think it lessens the crime i think it just makes us think more to be completely honest i have to say that it was and i've read game of thrones so <laughs> i've read like it too closest, i read it a while ago yeah that's the closest i can probably get and i'm trying to think about well the power actually gets there's like a an intense gang rape scene, which is a reverse because it's women gang raping a guy. But it was one of the like most vivid and, you know, stomach churning scene that I read. I think my eyes were bugged out the entire time I was reading it. And just like there's a certain phrase that I probably will never forget. 
that she wrote it. Uh, so anyways, just to say all that, she definitely is, is not giving him any, any space there. No. You know, I think it, I, yes, I, I'm trying to think about this here, right? Because I, I think there's, there's a reason for all of this that has happened. I think, you know, with people who suffer sexual abuse, often there's some like that causes more than just the, the strain from that abuse, but it, 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 I think it changes them as a person. Mm -hmm. And he certainly was, I think, a victim of, of sexual abuse in that moment when he was younger. And I think moving up north didn't help any, and it just seemed like the opportunities maybe he thought he would get, he, he wasn't getting, and it just seemed like his anger kept being compounded one after another, and the alcohol wasn't helping at all, and it was just like at the climax of, you know, all the anger he could take, he it, it was like pushed out in this in this truly violent act. Yeah, I, I don't, we can't absolutely <laughs> excuse his behavior, but I think maybe there's an origin point to that. And, and I almost wonder, you know, what if this initial scene with those men didn't happen? How would he be different? Because his first act of love happened to coincide with an act of violence. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like there there is a, a connection somewhat with that. Now, the other, I guess, is a play, right? Raising the Sun? No. Yeah, Raising the Sun is a play. Okay. Is there, is he also angry? Is the father angry? And it's been so long. Does he also show like angry characteristics? The father is actually dead. Oh. Okay. And it's the son. It's been so long. Yeah. And because the whole play centers around the fact that they are set to inherit insurance money or come into the insurance money that came along with the death of their father. And they're going to buy a house buy a house instead of renting this this apartment they live in, in on the south side of Chicago. They're buying a house in this nice new neighborhood and the neighborhood happens to be all white and the man from the HOA shows up to basically tell them, we don't want you and we're going to offer you money to to not come. Okay. And, and so it centers around that and the fact that the son is getting into these different schemes like he and a couple of friends are they're gonna open a liquor store and they need money to grease the wheels and and it's it's all underhanded and it comes into play later on so yeah um are there any parallels between the son then and charlie not necessarily no because just in characteristics not yeah, not necessarily because he's not the guy his name is junior he's not necessarily a violent like he you can he is um He's not violent toward his wife or his son or anything. He he's it, it's a it's not a very, very very violent play. Maybe a little bit, but he's he's more put down by the fact that like you know he's just struggling to make it, but he's also very um, immature in that way. Like like he hasn't even though he's a grown man, he still is he's still like a child because like his, his mother is like the one who's in charge of things. It's, it's a it's much different of a dynamic. I'm trying to remember the, the, what happens to my Angelou in, I know why the King's bird sings because there is a incident. It's not her, it's not her father and it's not her uh, relative. I think it's like a family friend who she ends up, um, I think like who, who molests her, rapes her. And, and right. we, we talked about that a little bit, but that was like episode three or something. So it's been a while. Um, and I, that's where I, that's where I started to draw a little bit of a parallel. Yeah. 
Well, anyways, I mean, that's the idea of anything else to say about Trolley or her presentation of him. I see a connection between the way he was treated and the way he treats Pauline because of that. It's almost like a trope, like the somebody who was abused becomes an abuser. Mm. And perhaps that there is that I think you're right. There, there may be there is a connection there where he eventually turns on his daughter like that. Maybe not out of anything. I mean, uh, for part of it it seems sexual. I mean, obviously the act itself is sexual because he's it, it's you know. But but it seems that he is thinking in that term. But there's also the there's also the sense that there's um uh, the sense that like he is doing it for a means of power in a way that like, you know, this gives him sort of sort of agency or power over somebody even as brutal and reprehensible as it is. Do you think that it would be different? His character would seem different to us if Pauline, his wife didn't give as good as she got in, in terms of the, the physical as well as verbal abuse. Possibly. I'm still trying to parse out why he, why she has him rape her as opposed to simply beating her, which sounds awful when I phrase it that way. But, you know, she, he's hitting her mother and she's hitting back and like, and then, I mean, I, for all I know, maybe there are scenes where he does beat her, but, but it's instead of, you know, transferring that anger down onto the kids, which does happen he does it in a much, in a, in a much worse, worse way. And I'm a, that's what I was trying to figure out. Like, how did it lead to that? Was it just because he felt so emasculated by his wife? But then again, I don't want to blame his, I don't want to blame his wife for the fact that he rapes his daughter because that's not, you know, it's not her fault. Sure. You know, it's, it's all on him. It's not the daughter's fault. It's not the wife's fault. Maybe in his mind it is, but you know, but in objectively speaking, like, no, no, he did this. But at the same time, yeah, you're right. It's like, yeah, it's 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 a tough, tough question. It's a tough, tough discussion to have. Do you think he connects the two acts? Like that one led to pleasure and wasn't as violent because he does compare Peckle standing there in the kitchen like when he first saw Pauline, I believe, just on one foot, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I think on some level at least he does. Um, not wholly, I think there's also, you know, but but at least on some level there there's that there's that connection. Did you this is a weird question but did did you expect that to happen because of course the beginning of the novel telegraphs it. But what was everything leading up to it? Did you when it happened you're like oh this is it? No. I think I might have been absorbed in other things. When it happened I was but when it happened I was both shocked but not surprised. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like I wasn't waiting for it to happen, but when it did happen, I wasn't surprised it happened, but I was still shocked by the, by the way it was portrayed. I mean, I was shocked at the very beginning, right? Because she certainly doesn't hide it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's right, right there. In the beginning, the first chapter, you know, that Peckle is pregnant with her father's baby. And so the entire novel, I was trying to figure out when this is going to happen. And then when it actually does uh, yeah, I was I was shocked as well, but yeah, I would just like you, I suppose, not surprised. Like it was inevitable because she led us to believe it was going to happen, but it was just shocking, of course, the way it was presented too. 
Okay. Well, final question is bringing it, looking at the its its context, its historical context, and then also bringing it up to date as well. So it was published in 1970, and at the time Morrison was writing the novel, the racist society that condemned Peckle Breedwell was still very much in place, and Morrison took great risks, both within the black community and American society as a whole, to tell this important story. While advances in civil rights and racial attitudes have been made in the intervening years, it is arguable that many of the core issues so vividly evoked in the novel actually still remain. So two questions here as we wrap up. What evidence is there that racial self-hatred continues to ruin lives? And what present-day cultural factors could contribute to tragedies like Peckalus? Looking at the first one, there is that what we talked about in media, but at the same time, there is more and more media that holds up um, minorities and other groups in a positive way. And I, I just I I'm trying to answer it in a way that's comfortable and doesn't make come make me come off as somebody just just completely ignorant because I don't know perhaps, at least as far as racial self-hatred. I know that socioeconomic status can definitely factor into this and the the amount of poverty in you know, at least in, in segments of the of the black community. Um, not everybody, but there is still there's still uh, quite a bit of it. And I think that's that's a way that it puts in there. But um, yeah, it's that's a hard. It's, I honestly, I'm, I'm trying to come up with an answer that doesn't make me sound completely ignorant. I'm afraid I'm going to come off as really ignorant uh, in that, or or sounding like you know, oh, you know, these people hate themselves, uh, because then it sounds like victim blaming and things like that, and um, or or the sort of you do this to yourself. But there is a self perpetuating cycle that's been going on for like decades of both implicit and explicit um, oppression among groups and communities, whether it's the way they're treated by police or or just um the way society subtly but not or not so subtly like keeps them from achieving certain economic goals or whatever um, but i don't know if that's self-hatred or if it's that's just again the system things like that i think you know the easy yeah i'm, try, I'm sorry answer I, I answered for... it terribly <laughs> oh no that well this is i think this goes back to when we first started like there's a point where you and i tom with with our whiteness like we aren't living that and so it's like mm -hmm. we can absolutely listen and, and hear and try to understand but we don't live it and so i think it is a difficult question to answer i have talked be i asked you know poor donovan but i <laughs> ask him like i text him randomly i mean it could be days since i've texted him or weeks and then i'll just say donovan can i ask you a racial question just because he's like my go-to guy and i just i'm one of those people that wants to understand and i think that the best way to is to ask questions and if someone doesn't want to answer the question they have that right but at, at least i gave it a shot so i asked at one point about the the tonal difference and what that was and I actually just talked with uh, a black woman yesterday about this very thing because I wanted her perspective because it does seem like it is and she affirmed this that it is more on the female side than mm. it is on the male side okay but there's there is this just self-consciousness or I don't know if there's like a better term self-consciousness sounds like a really good term for it but the, the tone, right? So if you are like really dark, 
then it's also tied with like intelligence. Like if you're really dark, you're not going to be successful. You're not going to be smart. Huh. And it's almost like a self-dooming prophecy kind of thing or yeah, self-fulfilling, yeah. I guess, but in a negative sense that, you know, if they're growing up with this idea, then that's really going to happen. And so I think to be more valued, uh, the, the lighter that you are, which of course goes in the place of Maureen, you know, you've got that scale of Pekua being, I think, the darkest character in this novel, as far as Morrison certainly described her, and then Maureen and uh, I've forgotten uh, Ger- Geraldine and, mm-hmm. and her family and, and all of that. So there is this like judgment within the society of looking and, and comparing tones and everything. I had an unfortunate experience last year with I, I had like the most amount of um, minorities in my class, which was really exciting because my school does not have no. many minorities at all. It's just we we cater to like upper crust white families and but the guys there would and and a couple in particular would compare their skin tones to toast and so one of them who is rather dark uh was like burnt toast and then it would go and so this made Uh. me very uncomfortable because even though they're all joking and laughing about it i was like this seems like a not good thing to do and and i think we we discussed the the fact that people might joke about it but i think there's some thing there like it's not all fun and games i of course didn't feel any authority to discuss with them so i went to the headmaster who happens to be black and i said hey this is the situation i think that maybe it's not good and and you should try to stop it and he asked actually was it tied to intelligence he asked me that so i i guess that you know there you go Mm -hmm. um they he did talk to all of them it's about five or six and they had no you know ill-meaning or ill intent with any of that, but just to show that I, I think, you know, that comparison is constantly being made and I, I think it's more damaging for, for females and young ladies growing up and everything. And, and that's, you know, all that to say that it's 2019 and 1970. And, and so one of the hard questions I asked this young woman that I was hanging out with yesterday is, do you think that this will ever go away? And she said that she did not think so. And it like it really it upsets me. It makes me really sad that that is something that exists. And it's something that I I just it really makes me sad. I'm kind of tearing up right now. It's just something that I, I wish did not exist in the world because I feel like any skin tone is lovely. I loved going over to Kenya and, and looking at the various skin tones. I, I thought it was beautiful, but it's just not seen in this community. And so it's just it's really heartbreaking. So, uh, all that to say, um, I think it's a relevant novel now. You started how, you know, at the beginning of this, that this is a great novel for segregation. But unfortunately, I think that it's something that you could just change, you know, 1941 to 2019. And it would still, it would still, you know, certain, I think, things you'd have to update. But I feel like it's a novel in its time that that lasts and and that's a very unfortunate thing. Yeah. um, And I think if you were to teach this novel in like an AP lit class, you would have to do that comparison between now and then, because um, the the trap you fall into when you're looking at, when you're trying to look at today's society through the lens of a novel that that, that was written in 1970 and it takes place in the 1940s is that you can fall into the trap of saying, well, this happened a while ago and not connecting it and not bringing in, say like pairing it with texts um, like, articles or things like that about things 
the conditions for people in communities like that are very much like Lorraine, Ohio, and 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 how and how the, the daily lives of people like who are like, you know, Pecola or or Trolley or Claudia or whatever. You know, so if if you don't do that, then you're doing a disservice to your students because you want them to see this as an allegory for today. But high school students tend to not think that way sometimes, um, with the exception of say like dystopian science fiction because they've seen so much of it. But just like say something like Holocaust literature, they are very good at separating that from now mm-hmm. and not believing that there that there are elements of that now. Which, like, you bring up, you know, how, how your friend said, you know, I don't know if this will ever be, if, if people ever stop feeling this way. And I think she's right. And that's really, really sad because of the fact that you have hundreds of years of prejudice and racism toward African-Americans, Africans, even in other countries. You have thousands of years of anti-Semitism. You have thousands, hundreds and thousands of years of um, homophobia, homophobia to the point where it was deadly for a lot of people. So, so the idea that you're trying to undo generation upon generation upon generation of societal conditioning—it's—it's it's a very pessimistic thing to say, and perhaps you know, it, but it's going to take well beyond our lifetimes to completely weed it out of society because. There will always, because the generations that cling to it are teaching the generations after it, and they are fighting anybody who is trying to tell those generations otherwise. But at least that's my perspective as a teacher. Um, but I think if you're looking at present-day cultural factors, Charlie's an alcoholic. You can bring in, you can bring in like the crack epidemic of the '80s and like things that happened in the city that, you know, that were widespread, police brutality. Um, you know, there are other things that 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 lead to incidents like this or lead to lives like this and things like that. You know, you just have to tweak it. If you're if you're taking this novel and setting it the present day, you just have to tweak certain things, but the factors are there. That's the really sad thing about our society. Yeah. And I think, you know, the alcoholism I think can connect across racial borders. Yes. I think that's not so that's something I, I feel like it's been a while since I've read slash watched it, but a streetcar named Desire. Mm-hmm. I think that was certainly one of the things that the main character was suffering from, and and um, a, a tree grows in Brooklyn. I think that the father was. It's been a while since I've read that, but the father was an alcoholic, mm-hmm. and and just yeah, just circumstances, you know, getting them down, and and you go to a place that you feel like there are opportunities, and you're not getting those opportunities is, is something that many people can. It resonates with many people. So. Mm-hmm. Well, final question is outside of the novel, but would you teach this? Well, actually, we changed it, right? Yeah, we'll would teach you it or read recommend it again. It. Would, yeah, so teach. Would you recommend? Would you read it again? Um, probably all three. Um, if I wasn't already teaching Beloved, um, but I would put this on like an independent reading list or something. Um, if I wasn't teaching Beloved, I probably would pick this up and, and look into it and teach it as well. Um, I would de- definitely recommend it to somebody who has never read Toni Morrison. I think it's actually, I think it's in a, for for somebody who is a novice to her writing, it's a good um, gateway. Like it's a good first, I mean, it's her first novel, but it's a good way in so that you can um, read this. Now, first, my first Toni Morrison novel was Beloved, which is very complex, you know, and very hard to follow in places. But this, I think, is a little bit easier of a read, even though it's, you know, very, very shocking. 
so I would recommend it. I think I would reread it as well. You know, put some space between me in it and then come back to it, and I think I'd probably get even more out of it. Yeah, I agree. It'd be fun to to read in a book club with people, or even you know, for a class and have I think diverse members mm-hmm. of people with with different backgrounds because it'd be interesting to hear from people that might experience something like this or or have. Yeah, that it resonates with them more than perhaps it, it would resonate with. Yeah, them. O- only if they're willing to offer that, because yeah. you don't want to. You also don't want to be the teacher or the person who puts the black person in the group on the spot and be like, "Hey, you're black. What's this like?" And you're like, "Yeah, that's not the yeah. way to do this." No, no, that's yeah. yeah. Donovan and my relationship is very. No, you guys are very. <laughs> it's very, very special yeah, in yeah. that way where I can ask him questions. Yeah. But yes, no, I agree with you there. And and I mean, honestly, besides even black Americans, I think Hispanics, um, I, I think that they are also now in this unfortunate time in their lives as well. And I, I don't I, I don't think we can compare experiences, but I, I think that they're going through a tough time. So mm-hmm. I, I think that they would offer a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, Good diverse point. experiences. Well, apparently we have no feedback this time around, which means no negativity from Robert (laughs) that we picked a bad book. But that's, you know, because we actually are recording this ahead of time. Tom and I have literally recorded three weeks in a row. Mm -hmm. No, Tom, wait a minute. I, well, because we did my show, then we did Vanity Fair. No, we did Vanity Fair back in like April. Oh, we did, we did, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So my show, then God Loves, Man Kills, Kills and then this and one. Then so we've done three, one. we've okay. done three weeks so in a row. Three, three, which I think that's the most we've done. We've done little marathons before. Yeah. So luckily we're friends, so we can stand each that's other true. for weeks at a time. But anyways, yeah, our summers are pretty packed with trips to various foreign countries, both literally and Epcot. And you can figure out which person is which. I guess in September we can talk about our trips. Yeah, yeah could take time out to do that because this is the august episode. this is the august episode yes okay that's what i thought so no feedback but i guess we'll have buku amount of feedback i hope so (laughs) i'm in our september one because we'll have like three episodes to catch up on maybe because despite being on an irregular recording schedule we were on a regular release schedule so this is coming out when it's supposed to be coming out yep so now there's a lot of pressure on Tom to give us a more hopeful and fulfilling, not fulfilling, that's the wrong word, more hopeful and uplifting novel. Tom, what are we going to read next time? Well, we're going to read a novel that gets about as hopeful and uplifting as dystopian oh, science no. fiction can get. Oh, no. The end of September, the last week in September, the second to last week, is National Band Books Week. and So the next episode will come out in September. And because National Band Books Week takes place in September, we are going to be reading Fahrenheit 451 by Ray. Oh, okay. So, yes, yeah. thank you for failing us to 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 give <laughs> an uplifting and hopeful novel. But anyways, yes, that's it for us then. Yep. So as always, you can check us out on Twitter at Rec Reading Cast. That's R A Q reading cast um you can go on our web page leave comments leave comments on the facebook's on the facebook's leave comments send us some emails like i said by next episode we should be all caught up to any feedback we have from vanity fair god loves man kills or the the bluest eyes so please or any of our and we 
And just like Alan and M, we emphasize this. If you are listening to old episodes, feel free to email us in and let they could hear this. But like, if you have thoughts on old episodes, you've gone back and listened to it. Feel free to email us in about those. Um, and as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. Absolutely. And go Team USA. That's right. Women's World Cup, right? Oh, yes, sir. Boy, was there a slaughter yesterday. Yeah, I heard. Yep. Very cool. All right. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true-freaks. That's two true-freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredreading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.